it's not our fault. We had to leave our families and our life, and we still need to feel some sense of belonging. Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to The Social Work Lens, a podcast produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Today, we are bringing you the second episode in a three-part miniseries focusing on the experience of youth in Vermont's foster care system. And if you missed episode one, now would be a great time to go back and listen to it. Before we start and jump into today's episode, Kate Cunningham, your host, is here in the studio with us to share a little context about what you are about to hear. Hi, Kate. Hi, Cassie. I think it's great to give a little context for these episodes. Back in the fall of 2021, CWTP worked with the St. Joseph's Orphanage Restorative Inquiry, and we did a listening session which involved DCF workers and other survivors from the St. Joseph's Orphanage, where we heard stories of the experiences of the St. Joseph's Orphanage survivors. They also had written a hopes and aspirations list, which we pull from in all three of these episodes for youth who are in state's care, as many of the survivors had been in state's care many years ago. One thing that we learned with the St. Joseph's Orphanage survivors was that telling their stories brought a lot of meaning to their experiences and helped build resiliency and healing. What we hear in the podcast here with these two youth, Mercedes and Haley, is their own experiences and their own storytelling of what happened to them while they were in state's custody. The stories are raw, they're honest, they come from their heart. These two young women didn't know each other before coming in and doing the podcasts. And you hear throughout the three episodes that they just get to know each other and feed off of each other and realize the commonalities that they have and the experiences that they shared. Some of these experiences are hard to hear. They talk about being in different foster homes, in different residential centers, times that they had when they ran, experiences they've had afterwards. So... Do what you feel necessary as you're listening to take care of yourself, to process afterwards, and to really kind of let settle in what these two amazing, resilient women talk about. And we hope that you enjoy and learn something. So this is episode two of our podcast series of Working with Youth and Getting Youth Perspective. And I am here again with Haley and Mercedes, and I'm going to ask you to do just a quick intro again for anyone who might be listening solely to this podcast and not the whole series. Um, Hi, my name is Mercedes. Um, I am one of the guests on the three-part podcast episodes. Um, I was in the system from ages 7 to 10 and then put back in the system for ages 13 to 18. Hi, I'm Haley. Um, I was in the system from ages 11 to a week before I turned 16. Great. Thank you, Haley. Thank you, Mercedes. It's so nice to have you back and to be talking again. We, just as a reminder, um, we are looking at a list of hopes and aspirations that were written in 2020 by uh, survivors of the St. Joseph's Orphanage Group, 
It was a restorative process called The Voices of St. Joseph's Orphanage. Last episode, we did the first two hopes and aspirations that they had that were about listening to children and um, seeing children when they're in the state's foster care system. And so it really was about the relationship with the DCF worker and the youth or child. This episode, we're going to do the next two items on the hopes and aspirations that really focuses more on alternative caregivers and youth in the system. So I will read the two hopes and aspirations, and then we will have a conversation about them. The first one is that the state must select and support foster families with great care. And there's quite a few bullets under this that the survivors from the St. Joseph Orphanage wrote down. So the first hope that involves alternative caregivers was that the state must select and support foster families with great care. They talk about, in the bullets underneath, um, giving foster family extensive training, doing background checks. So people who are caring for children need to know the difference between discipline and abuse, um, that the foster family compensation should be raised, and that institutions, religious or otherwise, which would really be like our residential placements, require very careful oversight if they're providing care for children. So that all kind of falls under their um, the state selecting and supporting foster families with great care. And then they have another bullet and hope of instead of taking kids from families, invest in supporting the family to care for their children. And so really they're saying whenever possible, children should be placed with their extended family. So today we're going to kind of dive into this, talking about alternative caregivers and foster families and extended or kin families, as we call them, and kind of thinking about what makes a good foster placement. So I'll turn it over to you, and maybe that's the question of, of what would you say makes a good foster family or placement? Um, I would say the best foster families I've had um, were ones where I didn't feel like an outcast with their other children and family. Um, there's a lot of divide when you're in a foster home where you can just, some foster homes, you can just tell that you're different and just... Because it's hard because, yes, we are not your biological children, but it, at the same time, like, it's not our fault. We had to leave our families and our life, and we still need to feel some sense of belonging. Yeah, belonging came up last time, I think, as mm -hmm. well, when we were talking about residential. And yeah. so I hear that, like, really just fitting in and being one of. Yeah. I think being in a foster family, especially... Um, it should be required to treat the child as one of your own. Like Mercedes said, like most foster homes you go to, like you're treated differently. You're not treated like you're their child. Um, I think it's just important to involve them in like all the activities you would of your own children. Like I was in foster homes where their children got to go to the movies, but because my caseworker didn't send over enough money, I wasn't allowed to go with them because they weren't willing to pay out of their pockets for it. Um, so it, sh it should be a requirement that you should be treated like you're their own child. Yeah. I had a foster family who would, um, and I had known them for years and years, um, they would let their their kids 
um, go out and do a bunch of stuff. But when I was there for the weekend, because I lived at a program and I would go to their house on the weekends, um, they would stop all plans that they had, um, not take me anywhere. And I remember I wanted to go to the store with my sister like five minutes away and they wouldn't even let my sister drive me to go to the store. And neither of us were untrustworthy. My worker hadn't said, to my knowledge at least, that I couldn't go anywhere and that she couldn't take me anywhere. Yeah. Ouch. Right? Yeah. We, um, I know the state developed a, what we call... And again, I'm doing the quotes, normalcy policy, so that kids in foster care actually get to do the things that are normal for kids their age. And it allows some access to kind of sleepovers or walking to Mm -hmm. the store or, you know, getting your driver's license or just doing the things that every kid gets to do. Yeah. I I hate it now because now that I'm an adult and I hear that my friends were like, oh, my gosh, like my parents didn't let me go to my friend's house and it was just so hard. It's like I wasn't allowed to go anywhere because I was in programs and I didn't go anywhere for years. And like it just uh, it makes me so jealous. I'm just like I just wanted to do all that stuff as a kid and I just missed out on so much because of all of these parameters and stuff. What about holidays? Holidays and placements in mm. foster homes. Um, I know personally when I was in placement in foster homes, holidays weren't really celebrated, you know. And for the kids who weren't allowed to go see their family, there's really, like, no gifts. Like, Christmas morning, my first Christmas in placement was so fucking awkward. <laughs> um It was just horrible. Like, <laughs> usually you wake up as a kid to, like, a Christmas tree full of presents, <laughs> not in, not in placements, not, that's not how it is. Yeah. Um, I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, if you guys are familiar. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have any holidays. Um, I was a Jehovah's Witness until I was about eight years old. So I never really minded that. I, I lived with a family that it was, uh, holidays were basically treated as like, um, oh, you know, this is to make up for everything that's happened between us. And that's kind of what gifts were. It was almost like a like bargaining with me. So I've never really liked holidays too much, but holidays aren't very celebrated in programs and stuff. Um, and it's sad because some kids get to go to their families and some kids are stuck at the program. And it sucks. I was one of the kids who was always stuck at the program and didn't really get to go anywhere. And it feels terrible when all your other program friends are are going places and you're just there. And the staff, you can just tell, just don't want to be there and are upset that they have to be. Yeah, because they want to be home with their family celebrating their holiday. Right. Yeah. I hear when I hear that, A, it's heartbreaking. And B, it's just that reminder of the things that we need to be thinking about. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Because personally, I hadn't been thinking about holidays. Mm-hmm. I do when the holidays come around. But those are our big kind of traditions, right, in families, whether you celebrate them or not, you have the tradition of, of doing yeah. that. I like that. Um, DCF does give you presents around holiday time and um, gift cards and stuff, which did you never get any? I never got any. Wow. Not once. Uh, well, I am very sorry for that, but I did. Um, as, even when I was a Jehovah's Witness as a kid, um, they didn't seem to respect our religion. I guess that was a big thing. They oh, they did not respect that my family was witnesses, nor my mom's side of the family, which could be another conversation if we want to come back to that. But um, 
Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, no. Well, I'm when I hear you talk about that, it just reminds me too of you know w- that we need to look at the culture mm-hmm. that each child and youth is is coming from and try to support them in being as normal in their culture and mm-hmm. their traditions as possible. And that that sounds like that got a little pushed to the side or dismissed mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. Like, I don't even believe that they relayed to my other foster families that um, we grew up as Jehovah's Witnesses. I went with a family and um, they did like a conjoined birthday. It was like we got taken in like March and I was like seven. My sister was eight. And um, they had like a birthday party for my sister. And it was so weird. Her and I were both like, what the heck is happening? And they were like, you can invite your friends if you want. They gave me presents on her birthday. And we had never exp- experienced that before. And I don't even think DCF relayed that that was our life. And that's, it was weird. And I experienced all my holidays for the first time. And it was a culture There's shock. There's a very big chance, too, that like DCF didn't know. Yeah. Right. So hopefully, again, well, when we talk okay. about, yeah. Th- yeah, they they did know. They knew for sure um, because they we believe that they purposefully didn't give me to that side of the family because they uh, they didn't like the religion because a lot of people can see it as um, culty. Um, and so DCF didn't respect that. Um, and they we believe that um, because my family actually recently told me from that side of the family that they uh, tried to get us, but DCF didn't let them. Instead, they uh, gave me to the side of the family that um, had abuse in their past and generational trauma. Um, and I know for me, if I was a worker, I would look at the the nice religion, even if it did seem a little culty, and the the family that has generational trauma and abuse, and I would give that child to the nice people. That brings me a little bit to that. Like instead of of putting kids in the foster system, mm-hmm. um, trying to find extended kin and and family and people that you know, and it sounds like they did it, but maybe yeah. not in the way that for you felt. Yeah, I'm I'm very against next of kin because um, I was given to my aunt and uncle who treated me horribly and were the reason I was put back in DCF for a second time. Because in families, it's generational trauma and abuse runs in families and mental health issues. And so if there was an issue with a parent and they had siblings, you know, that also can run with the siblings. And with their family, with their moms and dads and cousins and you know, all this stuff. I think next of kin is a hit or miss. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like the research should be just as much as what it would be to become a foster parent. Right. Um, I feel maybe not to the extent of that hard to get the certification to be able to get the child. But, you know, having research and record checks and mm-hmm. runs um, because that's often ran right over because they're family. Right. And it also brings me to when we talked in the first episode about checking in on on youth and having those conversations mm-hmm. and being able for you, youth, to be able to tell your worker what's going on or if you don't feel safe yeah. or if something isn't quite right and be listened to. I want to go back to um, something you both said about being in a foster home and feeling othered, right, or being treated differently than maybe a birth child in that home. What are some ways that foster families can actually help support you having that sense of belonging and not feeling othered? 
including them. And including them in family activities, family game night, and just including them in the things that they would do if we weren't there. And not um, similar to um, last episode, we were talking about um, people not feeling like we are a burden because of our file or whatever. Or I've noticed with a lot of families, they also feel like we're burdens and just think of thinking of us as human. It just it all just interconnects. And it's yeah, just... let's let's go back to what we said in the last podcast. Um, lots of foster families and foster caregivers become caregivers for the paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, while it doesn't look like a lot when you have little to nothing and that's an extra, you know, grand in your pocket for this foster child, <laughs> you're just a paycheck in their eyes. I had a family actually who was, I didn't know this as a child, but um, my my mom told me later in life that um, they um wanted to get me and my two other siblings because they were losing their house and their car um and we were told the entire time for the the about six years i lived with them that we were poor and we were upper to middle class um but they used that as an excuse to treat us poorly and not give us everything that we needed and while they were still getting money in their pockets from us being there right so really treating you treating you equal Mm -hmm. including you Offering the things that you need, yeah. right? Like also, Haley, when you said that, that you weren't able to go to the movies, maybe there's other ways to to get you to be able to go to the movie if the money wasn't coming from DCF, right? So how how can, can the foster family really include you and make you feel like you're not just a paycheck, but that you're another youth, you're another child, and you have the needs for love, for belonging, being, being part of the, the family, did you have experiences that you can pull from that were feeling like you really belonged? And what was different there? I was never in a good foster home. I'm trying to pull something out of memory. Mm. Um, a lot of the nice things that were done for me in foster homes as a child was just to get on my good side and make up for everything that had happened to me. Um... But I would say that um, I lived I lived with an aunt who wasn't really my aunt. She's like, I treat her as my aunt. I call her my aunt. Um, she's wonderful. I loved living with her. Um, she didn't treat me any differently. She treated me just as human. Um, and that was probably my favorite foster home. We didn't do anything really out of the ordinary. Um, they wouldn't really let me go anywhere, though, still. Um, because they thought I would do something or whatever. But I was also a risk at that time, so I, I understand that a little bit. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a fine line between keeping a, an adolescent, I'm going to mm-hmm. say, or, or even a youth um, of any age safe mm-hmm. and allowing them to kind of do the normal things. But yeah. let's talk about... When you go into the system and you're not a risk and then you're still treated as a risk, Mm -hmm. the reason why you then become a risk is because you're going to become rebellious. Mm -hmm. If you're told that you're not allowed to go anywhere or do anything for months to years at a time, eventually you're going to say, yeah, no, bye. Like, (laughs) I literally developed so many behaviors like – going into programs and stuff like I never would have 
developed the behaviors and had the behaviors that I did if I didn't see it from other kids and I'd never gone to those programs and foster homes in the first place. Yeah, sometimes we learn from our environment, Yeah, right? And I wouldn't have had to work so hard to get myself out of programs if I was never taught those things by programs in general and placements. Yeah, kind of a, um, it's a cycle. Yeah. I think um, that's another thing with like being placed in placements is I think developing all these new things that you learn from other people could be completely avoided if placements were placed by different levels. Mm-hmm. Like there's this placement where these people run away. Um, they're into the drugs, um, into rebellious behavior and you place that group of people in that place yeah instead of putting someone who has a drug addiction running away with someone who is literally being taken away because their family is using drugs and they've done nothing wrong yeah you place them in that placement these two people who have two completely different lifestyles they're obviously going to communicate and they're obviously going to pick up traits that this other person has. Yeah. Right. It can go one of two ways. It can be like uh, two people, three people planning on running away together and going out and doing drugs and stuff. Or it can be um, maybe the the kids who haven't really done anything um, bounce off, their behaviors bounce off of other people and make them better. Or it can make that child worse, like the one who hasn't really done much and is new to those behaviors, which hopefully they're not new to them at all because we don't want those being developed or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. yeah. When I went into placement, um, my first placement that I was in for a pretty decent amount of time, um, I had been there for two months at that point. And one day we got a new girl. (laughs) And she was so rebellious. She came in and the day she came in, she made friends with me. And two other females who were, we were all in around the same same age group. Um, I had been sober from pills for two and a half months. And um, <laughs> she's like, let's run away mm. her first day there. So, you know, we made a plan that by the end of the week, we were all going to sneak out our windows, run away. Well, that did happen. And... I ended up going, we ended up going at least a month and a half we were, we were ran away for. Wow. Um, didn't get caught, nothing. Um, I don't remember a lot of it because I was on a crack bender. Mm. Um, I had never done crack a day in my life before I ran away with these girls. Um, I just had a slight pill addiction that happened from a car accident that I was mm-hmm. in. Um, mm-hmm. I was overprescribed the medication and that's how I became addicted to the drugs and um, then I ran away with these girls and we were on a crack bender and it, like it literally it didn't feel like we were gone that long. But like I just remember like and it was so easy to find like drugs are so populated out there. Like it's just so it was so easy. This guy, he was a dealer and he took us all in and we we literally stayed with this guy for this entire month and a half that we were gone. And we were high all the time and like mm. we didn't have to do anything like he just gave us the drugs like he just wanted the company he didn't expect any sexual favors in return or anything and like i just he got arrested because he was holding us fugitive and state ties yeah Yeah. Um, that makes sense Haley. (laughs) yeah i mean and that's what i mean like you pick up 
bad traits and behaviors. Like I had been sober. I had only used pills. I had never mm. done anything else a day in my life before then. And then we meet this guy with these girls. <laughs> Let me, I have two questions for this. Um, one, if you could, if you could go back and, or if you could tell yourself then, um, like whether it was that situation or your situations, Mercedes, where you talk about you escalated your behaviors. Um, if you could tell yourself anything, looking back at that stage when you were in residential or, or a program, what would you say to yourself? Honestly, I wouldn't tell myself anything different. I am a strong believer that my life choices and actions that happened in my past is what got me to where I am today. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be as successful as I was. I wouldn't be so educated in certain things if it wasn't for the fact that I went through those life experiences. So, yes, it was shitty, but it was also very educational and I wasn't sheltered. Mm-hmm. It's a real learning. I would tell myself to calm down because I, um, when going through programs, I experienced more trauma than I've ever had. Um, and it was a horrible, lonely road for me. Um, and so I just would would warn myself that it was going to be like that if I um, kept because I was in lower level placement. I didn't say this on the podcast, but mm. I was in lower level placement. I was only supposed to be there for six weeks. And I thought, no, I need to go home to my family. I need to um, go home to my friends. I had a boyfriend. I had this and that. Um, and I. I needed to go home and I um, did worse and worse behaviors. I was running away. I was harming myself uh, to try to get out of that program. And then I got out of the program. And little did I know that I was going into higher intensity programs. Mm. I was staying in programs for a week, two weeks, a month, Mm -hmm. because I would just try to get myself out of them. And eventually I had built myself up to such high intensity that I couldn't even go outside. Um, And... It was really hard, so I would have told myself to just calm down and just not keep digging myself holes. I have a tendency to dig myself very deep holes. (laughs) (laughs) Filling those holes, right? Yes. (laughs) What that said, that you would tell yourself to calm down um, and that you, Haley, are taking this as kind of like a learning. It, It makes you everything that you are with all the different experiences. What would have been helpful? What could someone have done to either even though it was an experience that you learned from keep you from running or keep you in the program and or help support you mercedes with with being calm um i just needed attention and love not love and like the you know just i needed to feel something because a lot of the times i would run away i'd only be gone for a couple hours i just like to run a i was a really sporty kid and b i just wanted somebody to see me mm-hmm I just wanted to, not physically, mm-hmm. like, out in the community. I mean, like, mentally, just, like, I wanted them to see that I was hurting. Yeah. And I wanted them to uh, recognize. If somebody had just sat me down and played a board game with me, I would have been so freaking happy. So it was like a call for help. Like, hey, yeah. here I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to do so much negative t- attention-seeking behavior. And I am surprised that nobody caught that. And they just weren't... I just wasn't helped mentally. It was... I had so much behaviors that everything my first few years in programs was just to help mitigate those behaviors and deal with them instead of getting to the root cause of why I was doing those things yeah so really the what is the underlying need mm-hmm. right with the behavior yeah for sure my behaviors were caused by childhood trauma mm-hmm. if my mom would have just paid closer attention 
and realized that the man she let in her house was sexually assaulting me, I wouldn't have seeked the male attention at 11 years old. I wouldn't have wanted to be sexually active at 11 years old. I wouldn't have been talking to men who were 35 at 11 years mm-hmm. old. Mm-hmm. Um, I just feel like if my mom would have paid closer attention and picked up on the signs mm-hmm. that, you know, there there was plenty of signs. Like, she'd leave yeah. to go to work and have him babysit me, and I'd, I'd cry and beg her not to leave. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like there's just a fine dis- difference between wanting your mom to stay home from work as a child who has no sexual abuse trauma and someone who's being sexually abused and crying, like, throwing a full-on temper tantrum, chasing their mom halfway down the street, begging them to come back. Um, like there was just so many signs that she could have picked up on and she didn't. And, you know, in a way I do blame her for not noticing because maybe I wouldn't have at 11 years old seeked so much male attention. Mm-hmm. It also makes me think of kind of the village, right? The need for a village for children. Yep. Like if there were other adults who mm-hmm. you could have turned to, if someone else was available and... I think, yeah, for both of you, that's what I'm hearing, too, is that it really just keeps coming back to that need for belonging and mm-hmm. love and attention and ways to get it in, in healthy ways. Yeah. But I also um, kind of fight with myself because I'm a very insightful person. And I'm like, well, if I had gone back and told myself to calm down and people had known that it was just attention-seeking behavior, would it have been enough? Because I needed so much attention at that point to make up for almost my entire life. And I just kept wanting and wanting and wanting. Um, And I don't have as many attention-seeking behaviors as I did then. Not nearly. But I just think, would it have been enough if somebody had given me that attention? Or uh, would I have been needing more? Right, right. Because people get tired of that after a while. There's only so much people can give. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and they reach the end of their rope. So it is, it's, again, is it listening? Is it how, what is the dynamic there that could be, that could be the helpful dynamic? Oh, I just, I'm, I'm moved. I am saddened. Um, I am touched by your stories. They're, they are very real. I appreciate you, you sharing all of this. If in wrapping this episode up, if you could, Give one piece of advice, just like the last time, to an alternative caregiver, whether it was someone in a residential or, or a foster home. What one piece of advice would you give to them? Be gentle and kind. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, um, we're all just kind of loving children, looking for, looking for someone, you know, looking for anyone to, to give us what we need. Um, I've never really seen a child and like a young adult in in the system who has had malicious intent just to be malicious. It's because they haven't been given something that they've needed. Um, and yeah, just be loving and kind and gentle and realize that we're also humans. <laughs> sure are. Boy, well, thank you so much for this second episode. Um, I look forward to the third episode where we will come together again and discuss kind of access to your information, your access to your information. So 
I appreciate you too so, so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Social Work Lens is produced by the University of Vermont's Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Our theme music is composed and performed by local band Brick Drop, and our sound production and engineering has been brought to you by Egan Media Productions. We'd also like to give a special thank you to our in-house administrative production assistant, Emma Baird. For The Social Work Lens, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and we'll see you next time.